0: Welcome to D.A.R.E., the show for innovators, entrepreneurs, and startup leaders who dare to shape the future. Your hosts today are Ned Hayes and Cecilia Mariani. D.A.R.E. is brought to you by Darwin, the superpower tech team that can make your vision a reality. The D.A.R.E. podcast is excited to welcome Josh Carter to the show today. Josh is a startup advocate. He's been a startup founder, an entrepreneur, a program manager for Accelerators, a VC, a U.S. Navy vet, and he's a man who connects the dots in Portland and makes things happen for the tech ecosystem here. He's been very involved in the Upstart Collective, in Demolicious, and in building the whole ecosystem to build a more diverse and collaborative world where tech companies can really thrive and grow. So really happy to have Josh here. Welcome, Josh.
1: Yeah, it's a great ecosystem and I, I love it. I've been here a decade and I can't think of any other place I want to be.
0: One thing that I saw that you did recently that was kind of cool was Demolicious. So you were kind of bringing that back, right? So tell us about Demolicious.
1: So yeah, so uh, Demolicious started about five or seven years ago. And the objective was, it didn't matter if your solution was fully baked or not, just come pitch it. And we want to learn as a community what it is you're working on. And so they would take over a theater, three, 400 people would show up, and the audience would pick a winner. That winner would get this gaudy trophy, and they would slap their startup sticker on it, and then they'd strap it to their bike and go home. COVID sort of killed, uh, actually, a little before COVID, the event shut down. Adam Duvander decided he didn't want to do it anymore. And then when I was at WeWork Labs, we had them build us an entire championship belt and the belt is like full on leather and brass it's beautiful and we tried to bring it back last year and it was clear that the ecosystem was not quite ready for in-house in-person events quite yet mm-hmm. so we brought it back this year we had it last month as you mentioned we had seven teams pitch maybe 60 people showed up mm-hmm. it was amazing the energy was great people really appreciated uh seeing what people are building There were some remarkable solutions that came, and we're going to do it every month until people tell me to stop doing it.
0: So who was the winner last time?
1: Yeah, a great company called KickPlan. They're an API company that helps with B2B SaaS companies and their pricing. So really good company. I thought it was a great pitch. Clearly, so did all the attendees because they won by a pretty big margin, and it was fun to see.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. So you've also been deeply involved in uh, creating the Upstart Collective here in town, right? Yeah. Yeah. We
1: started that in September, 2022.
0: So tell us about the Upstart Collective. What is it and why does it matter?
1: Yeah, I think it's good to start with its origin story. So back in 2016, I went through a program called Techstars in Chicago as a founder, and we went through it in a space called 1871. And 1871 is 180,000 square feet. It's massive. It's in a building that's 4 million square feet. But if you're in the startup ecosystem, you're going to end up at 1871 because all of the organizations supporting the startups are in that one space. So you've got Pritzker Group, you've got Hyde Park Angels, got Hyde Park Ventures, Techstars is in there. All of these different groups are there. So back in 2016, when I came home, I grabbed Rick Rosie, Skip Newberry. And Nile Travers from JLL. And we went over to the city hall and we said, we need that here. This is amazing. Why can't we have that here? And uh, we were turned away from the city, unfortunately. But six years later, we got into conversation with Ben Parrish at Graybox. And at the time, Graybox had just rented out the seventh floor of the Olympic Mills building. Uh-huh. The beautiful space that we're in today. And then COVID hit. And they had just signed a 10-year <laughs> lease. They signed this long-term lease, and then uh, and then COVID hit, and everybody went home. And so we approached Paul Weiner, the CEO of Graybox, about this founder space, and he said, do it here. Whatever version 1.0 looks like, just do it here. And so with no expectation about what kind of return he was going to get, that's what we did. So we started the Upstart Collective in 2022 with nothing more than desks and a space of about 4,000 square feet. Fast forward to February of 2024, we have 70 plus members now, and we just opened the second location on the west side with the partnership of, uh, with PSU.
0: So what kind of people join the Upstart Collective? What kind of people are there?
1: We had a very simple set of rules for the space. The first was the founders had to be building something. We couldn't have, could, because we have such a small amount of space we couldn't have founders mixed with service providers and we didn't really think of this as a co-working space so we keep founders that are just working on a product led company in the space and then after after we we established that we established three simple rules the first is they can't sell to each other they're, they're not each other's customers <laughs> if they create collaborations great but they're not selling to each other the la- the second is what's shared there stays there we want founders to be vulnerable and share how difficult this process is. And to do that, we have to make sure that if they're sharing something vulnerable, that stays there. Or if they're sharing something like, this VC was horrible to me. We don't want that getting out, obviously. So we want that information to stay. The last is they're going to give more than they get. We want the place to feel like a community. So because we have those three pillars or rules, it really sets the tone for the entire space. Mm -hmm. So you have founders that are actually very vulnerable You have founders that are there to help each other and share their experience and their different skill sets and their contacts. We've had founders make introductions where they connected with an investor and that investor invested in their company. So the community and and the guide rails that we set, it's working.
0: Right. And then does that kind of uh, community in the Upstart Collective also contribute to other things such as coming to Demolicious, building out a, a kind of a tech supportive community writ large or building a larger ecosystem how does that all work together
1: it's a great question i think one of the vehicles by which we do that is we have community events mm-hmm. so we kind of uh we started this event in the early days of the upstart collective called first fridays and the initial intent for first friday was hey the first friday of every month let's just like sit down Go grab a drink, sit on the balcony, and cry in our whiskey, and talk about how hard this stuff is. And then at some point, uh, the community was in the Upstart Collective was saying we shouldn't be the only ones that get to cry in our whiskey. Everybody should be able to come cry in our whiskey. Like, let's invite everybody. And so it sort of morphed into this open event for the community to come and meet all the founders. And what we've done in the last few months is we started to showcase found specific founders in the Upstart. So we just had. The first Friday was last week and we had Bobify and they're doing like vending machines where you can get different flavors of Boba. And then the week before, the month before that, we had E-Tribe and they demoed the stuff that they're doing currently for the Winter Lights Festival. So it's nice that the, found, the community gets to meet the founders overall, but they also get to learn more about individual founders. And we're trying to do more of that. And we've invited the community uh, to host their events at our space as well. So Got there's it. a bridge uh, in there. And now that we have a West Side location, we have two places where we can run events.
0: So tell us more about how the West Side location came together. Were you planning on that for a while and trying to find the right fit?
1: Our objective has always been based on that 1871 model where we have one big physical location mm-hmm. where all the different groups can be. Back in November, uh, Portland State University reached out to us and said, hey, we just got this money from the federal government to build innovation hubs. That's exactly what you guys are doing. Like, just do that with us. And so uh, we said, absolutely, 100%. That makes so much sense. It allows us to really diversify the kind of exposure we get within the community about what founders are doing and what entrepreneurship is. And now we have access to student body that's really diverse in Portland so that they can see what it's like. So that's how that conversation came about. And it escalated really quickly. And so now we're we're in the old Portland State Business Accelerator building on South Corbett. And so we have a little bit of space there. We have enough for about maybe 30 desks in that location with room to grow, obviously. But uh, our hope is in the next two years that we'll have one large physical location.
0: Right, right. Well, this this ties into something that, that actually I saw you post a while ago, about clusters and the importance of value clusters, right? You you mentioned the uh, Washington State Department of Commerce's ICAP or Innovation Cluster Accelerator Program. And so you're familiar with that program and what a value cluster is and why it should happen.
1: Clusters are so important because they do the work that both sides can't do themselves. They sort of act as a, a mediator to bridge the public and private sector together. And so I think clusters are really a key to accelerating innovation. And so at Maritime Blue, where I was at for a couple of years, we were the first cluster organization on the West Coast and the first cluster organization in Washington state. Now, as you mentioned, they have a whole ICAP program where they're standing up clusters all the time because the model works clearly. works. And I think the state of Oregon is missing an opportunity uh, to not do something like that, because. Unfortunately, the challenge with Oregon uh, State in general is that our Department of Commerce, if you go to the Department of Commerce website, really just has business forms. But really, our trade organization is Business Oregon. But we have 49 other states that call it Department of Commerce. So if you're like Business Finland or Innovation Norway or Polemare France or Kosame, Korea, you're not Googling Oregon Business Oregon. You're Googling Oregon Department of Commerce. And so when you see it's just business forms, you go, well, I don't need to do business with Oregon because they don't really have a Department of Commerce. That's a a
0: huge, huge
1: missed opportunity just based on branding alone. Right. (laughs) So We get a lot of delegations that come to Seattle, like Kobe, Japan and Paul Mare, France and all these other folks, Portugal. And uh, and we're only a three hour drive and they don't come down here because they don't see Oregon as an opportunity. And I think clusters can really solve that in a big way for the state.
0: Portland actually has a great record of doing uh, food, beverage, hard goods, you know, Nike, Adidas, uh, Salt and Straw. But we don't have a great record with tech. We do have some some shining lights. Um, Cloudability with Matt Ellis was a hit. Urban Airship got off the ground. You know, things can get launched here. But we don't have the same track record as Seattle in the tech zone. And so it sounds to me like what you're really focused on is uh, making Portland a destination place, just as it is for food and beverage today. Making it a destination for tech and for tech to grow here. Is that accurate? Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I you know here's the thing: we didn't to your point, we don't have a lot of historical large exits here. Like we don't have a huge amount of IPOs to lean on to say, look at how amazing we are. But like you said, Cloudability was a great exit. Reflect.io was a great exit. We've had some really good companies that have come out of our ecosystem. I think there's a challenge where those ecosystems, you talk about Seattle or the Bay Area, they have this flywheel that exists, right? We invest early on in these founders. They go out and they grow companies. They get an exit, and then they become an angel investor for the next. We don't have that early part. We're not doing enough to fill the, what I would call the top of funnel. We're not taking enough early bets on founders at the pre-revenue stage. So we're not, if because we're not betting on those early stage companies, if they go raise somewhere else and they get an exit, what's their motivation to give back? They have none. In fact, I've talked to founders who've gotten money from other ecosystems and said to me, Josh, when I get my exit, I'm not going to put my money back in this ecosystem because nobody believed in me in the early stage.
0: Oh, How do we
1: get back to that? Yeah. How do we get back to where we're like, We're making earlier bets. We got to stop thinking that, you know, we've got to stop being so risk averse. And we need to think about like just making early stage bet. I don't, it's just at a, at a broad stroke level. I'm not worried about like, I mean, we need to make early bets in women and people of color. Like that's a problem of itself. Like what we talked about, but the more pressing issue at a broad stroke level is we are not doing anything at the pre-revenue level to help these founders get up and, and grow. And you know the counter to that argument is that we don't have a lot of founders that are really working on venture scale companies to a degree that we have an order of magnitude of companies that would be investable. So that's part of the thing that I'm trying to solve with the Upstart Collective is identifying that, making sure founders know the difference between what an investable company is and what a lifestyle business is, because we have a lot of lifestyle businesses. to be you know quite frank, uh, but like we need to find those like gems in there and prop those up. They often get lumped in with the lifestyle companies, and we need to be able to be better about identifying those little rough gems and uh, supporting them in the early stages.
0: Right. So I'll ask a real leading question here: Why? Why are we doing Upstart Collective, Demolicious? clusters. What's the kind of ultimate big goal? If you could imagine, you know, where are we going with all of this activity? What's the point?
1: Sure. I think for me, for within the Upstart Collective, my goal is simple. I just want to connect founders to resources uh, Mm -hmm. and build a community that that actually uplifts people. I've been doing a really small piece of that with Coffee with co-founders. When I was a founder, it was really hard for me to find other founders to sort of like
0: commiserate
1: with. And uh, and we've been doing uh, coffee with co-founders, which is now founder coffee for almost 10 years. And we have 2,500 people. We've had founders created at that event. We've had people get investment and exits out of that meetup. And it shows that the model can work if we just give it a vehicle to exist. And so that's sort of the Upstart Collective. The Upstart Collective is that second rope or that second rung From founder coffee, where now I'm starting to bring in TAO, I'm starting to bring in OEN and other supporting organizations to be in the same room. Because when serendipity happens, when we're all in the same room, it doesn't happen over zoom, doesn't happen over slack, it only happens when we're there to have those organic conversations. So my hope is that at least with the upstart Collective, that we facilitate that organic growth that can happen that we know can happen. My hope for the state is that they start to realize that they need to walk and chew gum at the same time, that a housing crisis is going to exist no matter what year it is, and that there's a Venn diagram that exists between economic development and how we solve the housing crisis overall. So my hope is that we find somebody that can be in Salem that understands the the economic portion of it so that we can narrow the the wealth gap for folks, we can support emerging VC fund managers, we can make more early stage bets when we need to, especially for those that are being ignored. And at the end of the day, we can make Oregon not appear to be a flyover state, which it is today.
0: Right. Well, speaking of not overlooking those who are ignored, you've actually done some work in this area with uh, 1859, right? So actually investing in, in founders who, who are ignored by other investors. So could you tell us some about, about your work there?
1: Yeah, 1859 is one of those things where it's still taking a lot to get, It's we haven't invested anybody yet, we're still raising a fund, and when I say it's sort of the proverbial we, it's just me, but the thesis was very simple. Every year, University of Oregon does a capital scan of our state of the landscape for funding, and every year it's the same story, right? We see it uh, 2.9% of all VC funding goes to women, less if you're a person of color, and if you're LGBT or military veteran. You're not even a stat on that study. So there's a tremendous opportunity to fill that gap where nobody else is really doing that work. And so that's what the 1859 uh, fund is all about. We're working on a couple of things that might solve that where we're actually able to fund, but it's, it's too early to really spend any time diving into it. But that's been the thesis for the fund is how do we help those that are being clearly being ignored and continue to be ignored in our state? And, you know, it's funny, we, we're talking about this even on the same day that wit announced they're closing up shop. I like, think we're right. going backwards in a lot of ways, right? Like, it's just, it feels like we're in the tech pledge. Same thing, they stopped the tech pledge, which was, you know, getting companies to acknowledge the gaps they have in DEI and and figure out ways to fix that. I feel like in a lot of ways, the state's going backwards and how do we fix it?
0: Yeah, so for those listeners who don't know, PDF's wit, which is Women in Technology, announced today that they would be shutting their doors for a variety of reasons. But basically, they aren't getting the funding that they need to be sustainable at, as an organization that can help women in technology and can help all of us to be better in technology because, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And so, you know, if one if one part of our ecosystem is, is damaged or weaker, we're all kind of suffering from that. I think you'd agree with that, Josh, right?
1: Oh, hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's it's frustrating because there's two sides to the nonprofits, first of all, are really difficult. And it's made even more difficult when we can't find a way to support them, whether through private dollars or public dollars, when we can't support them, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. And I can't think of a better organization that has made trackable. And I said this before, but you can trace back their impact, whether it's finding women jobs, or helping women stand up new businesses, or whatever the case may be, or getting them a scholarship to learn how to code, whatever the case may be, PDX made more impact for women in technology in the state of Oregon than any other organization I could think of. And the fact that the state or the city or the county or any other government agency couldn't find a pathway to help save that organization is, uh, is so heartbreaking.
0: Right, right. Well, let's hope that together we can create a more vibrant ecosystem and one that is is sustainable for the long term. That's the goal. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I hope so. And, and look, I think my last point to that is also that we're still learning what COVID did to our ecosystem. There's a lot of people that left. There's a lot of people that came. Yeah, and uh, and I think what's interesting is that in the before times there was a lot of resistance to things that came from out of town to try to help the ecosystem. And they were just doing one thing, trying to make the world smaller for our community, which is a great and very valuable way to contribute to a community. Whether it was Kauffman 1 Million Cups or eBay for startups or Google for startups, they all came here to do something which was let's make the world smaller. And the challenge is the ecosystem sort of rejected that because we like our stuff homegrown. I think with the attrition and the new people coming in, Hopefully that mindset is shifting to where now we can start to look at the fact that these these groups that are maybe not from Oregon or Portland, they're here to help to make the world smaller and to give resources outside of the state, mm-hmm. which is what I think we need to be competitive.
0: Right. right. Okay. And my last question is, uh, what do you dare to dream? What's the world you're trying to create?
1: Uh I don't know that i'm creating trying to create a world as opposed to i'm I'm trying to create a community within our space that is fully inclusive that is fully collaborative that is fully uh supported i I think that's my my goal with the Upstart collective is I really see a pathway where we have one large uh, building in Portland, wherever it is in Portland, where founder who's new to the ecosystem. They've never done this rocket ship ride before, can walk in, find a desk, find the resources they need, and have a fighting chance to be right. the next unicorn for the for portland. and that's that's what I hope for with the Upstart Collective is that it becomes that vehicle by which we're building better founders.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing your dream with us, Josh, and for uh, giving us some of the history of Portland and how we can get better. So really appreciate your time today. Thanks to our guests today for their great insights on D.A.R.E., the podcast for innovators, entrepreneurs, and startup leaders. If you'd like your story to be featured on D.A.R.E., just contact us at info at D.A.R.E. is brought to you by Darwaft, the tech team that can make your vision a reality.